0: A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless.
2: The way Israel defends itself matters. It's imperative that Israel act in accordance with international humanitarian law and the laws of war.
1: That's U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken last week with strong words of caution for Israel. It's a significant shift in tone compared to the total support Blinken had delivered earlier in the war. But with the temporary ceasefire over, Israeli forces have begun a brutal second phase of operations, expanding into southern Gaza, set on Khan Yunus, where the IDF say Hamas leaders are hiding out. Meanwhile, people in Gaza say there's nowhere left that's safe. Many have already fled from the north, and the UN says more than 80% of the population has been displaced. With international scrutiny over the rising Palestinian death toll, which is 16,000, according to Palestinian health authorities, there are growing questions about the state of Israel-U.S. relations.
2: A noticeable rift has emerged between the United States and Israel, marking unprecedented tension between the two longtime allies. Despite
1: the Biden- Today, we're asking whether the Allies are at odds over Gaza and what the growing strain in that relationship means for the future and for the civilians caught in the middle. Here to explain is Greg Karlstrom. He's the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Hey, Greg, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Greg, let's begin today with a reminder of where the U.S. and Israel were at the beginning of the war. How strongly did the U.S. respond after the October 7th Hamas attack? The
0: American response in some ways was really unprecedented. It wasn't just that uh, we heard strong American support for Uh, israel's war in gaza for its right to self-defense
1: in this moment of tragedy i want to say to them and to the world and to terrorists everywhere that the united states stands with israel we will not ever fail to have their back
0: that's something that happens every time uh, there's been a conflict in gaza over the past decade and a half (laughs) Uh, or, not just the fact either that America has sent a sort of ongoing airlift of munitions and other military equipment to
2: Israel. First shipments of U.S. military support have already arrived in Israel, and more is on the way. As Israel's defense needs evolve, we will work with Congress to make sure that they're met.
0: And I can tell you uh, again, that's not unusual, but going so far as to send two aircraft carrier groups to the Middle East, sending air defense batteries across the region, sending thousands of troops to the Middle East. That is something that we haven't seen before, that, that level of military support. Mm. Uh, we saw an American destroyer in the Red Sea shot down uh, missiles and drones that are thought to have been fired from Yemen in the direction of Israel. We cannot
2: say for certain what these missiles and drones were targeting, but they were launched from Yemen heading north along the Red Sea, potentially towards targets in Israel. So uh,
0: beyond the usual political and diplomatic support, really an unprecedented level of military backing for Israel over the past two months.
1: Yeah, so we've also heard early on from Antony Blinken basically saying that America was going to stand by Israel no matter what. To
2: any adversary, state or non-state, thinking of taking advantage of the current crisis to attack Israel, don't. The United States has Israel's back.
0: Right. And for the Americans, of course, a lot of this has been not just about the, the immediate conflict between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, but also these fears of a regional configuration mm-hmm. that Hezbollah in Lebanon might get involved in a bigger way, uh, the Houthis in Yemen, other Iranian backed groups across the region. So the Americans have tried to not just in word, but also in deed, uh, make it very clear that they are supporting Israel and they are trying to deter these these other Iranian back groups from joining the war in a significant way
1: so that that said you know given the the strong rhetoric and the and the strong support we we have started to see recently some cracks in this uh, unified front, I guess. How would you characterize the state of U.S.-Israel relations right now?
0: It's become certainly a bit more tense over the past two months. Uh, if you go back to the days after the October 7th massacre, uh, America wasn't raising any questions about the Israeli response. It was full-throated support for Uh, the war in Gaza and and whatever it was that Israel planned to do. More and more in recent weeks, we've heard from Vice President Kamala Harris.
1: The United States is unequivocal. International humanitarian law must be respected. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed.
2: Secretary Blinken. Before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. So we will continue to press Israel to protect civilians and to ensure the robust flow of humanitarian aid.
0: Uh, All of them have begun to raise concerns about, uh, I think, two things. One of them is the tactics that Israel is using in Gaza, the atrocious civilian death toll that we've seen, the increasingly dire humanitarian conditions there. Uh, And then the second issue is this: this question of the day after, of when the war ends, whenever that is going to be. uh, What does the situation on the ground look like in Gaza? Who is in control of that territory? Is it Israel? Is it the Palestinian Authority? (laughs) Is it somewhere else? And the Americans are not getting the sorts of answers to those questions that they want from the Israelis. And so they have in their public messaging, but then much more so in their private uh, remarks to Israeli officials. Uh, they have become more and more critical of this war effort.
1: So, so actually, I'm going to talk about each of those things uh, uh, in a little more detail. So, so there have been some some direct signals that the Biden administration is shifting its position a bit on the war. On Tuesday, the U.S. announced it will impose visa bans against individuals involved in undermining peace, security, stability. In the occupied West Bank.
3: Allies of Israel condemned a
0: sharp rise in attacks on Palestinian civilians by Jews who are armed and who've settled in the West Bank. The- now the U.S. is imposing travel bans on a few dozen of those responsible, possibly including their family members as well.
1: State- but, but let's go through each of these major divisions between Israel and the United States right now, starting with something you've already mentioned, the scale of Israel's renewed military assault on South Gaza. So so the U.S. has drawn a bit of a line here, right? Can you, can you kind of walk me through that?
0: Right. Since the end of the week-long truce last Friday, uh, the Israelis, before the end of the truce, they signaled that they were planning to expand their offensive mm-hmm. beyond North Gaza to Southern Gaza. And the Americans made it very clear that if Israel did that, they didn't want to see Israel use the same tactics
2: in the North that it used in the South. But Israel has the most... Sophisticated, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world. It is capable of neutralizing the threat posed by Hamas while minimizing harm to innocent men, women, and children. And it has an obligation to do
0: so. The way what we saw in the north was uh, weeks of ferocious aerial bombardment followed by a very heavy ground offensive with. Uh, you know, armored columns of tanks going neighborhood by neighborhood through North Gaza, uh, which is still ongoing now in, in bits of the North. Mm-hmm. That was, to some extent, enabled by the fact that Israel told civilians to flee the North, and most of the population of North Gaza has now fled to the South. Yeah. As Israel geared up to to launch a, a southern part of this offensive, those civilians now have nowhere to go, right? They are stuck in southern Gaza they can't go back to the north it's controlled by the israeli army it's it's largely in ruins and they can't leave gaza so they are stuck there and mm-hmm. the americans said very clearly you can't use the same tactics in the south it can't be this the same ferocity of fighting because the civilian death toll which was appalling in the north in the first month and a half of the war uh, is likely to be even worse in the south that is what the americans wanted that is what they told the israelis Judging by what has happened uh, over the past few days since the, the truce ended and fighting resumed, uh, it doesn't seem like that message was really received or acted on. What we've seen uh, in Khan Yunus, which is the, the first major city south of the evacuation line that the Israelis demarcated in Gaza, what we've seen there has been very similar to the north, it seems. It's, it's very heavy aerial bombardment. Uh, It's reports of Israeli tanks going through parts of the city and and very heavy ground fighting there and uh, civilians who you talk to in Gaza saying they don't feel they have anywhere safe to go. So, what America wanted, an entirely different set of tactics in the South, It, it doesn't seem like Israel has really done that so far.
1: So it sounds like the U.S. felt like it had to spell out that reduction in civilian casualty. And yet you know, Netanyahu has not seemed to follow that. What's he said in terms of the response to that line that the U.S. has been laying down? I mean, the
0: Israeli government and the Israeli army, they have paid lip service to that American demand. I think the, the best example of that was uh, over the weekend, the Israeli army released a map of Gaza that had divided Gaza into about 600 numbered zones and the idea of this map was that the Israeli army said on a rolling basis day by day uh, we will tell Palestinians these are the areas where there is fighting today and these are the areas where you should flee to because those areas will be safe. In theory that was meant to try and, and alleviate some of these concerns about civilian casualties. In practice, Uh, When you talk to Palestinians in Gaza, they say the map isn't clear. First of all, they're they're not entirely sure where these zones begin and end. And in some cases, they've (laughs) been told to leave one area and go to another area. But the route that they are told to take to get there uh, takes them through other active zones of fighting. And then also add to that the fact that, that there are huge issues in Gaza right now around electricity, internet connectivity, just getting in touch with people to even get that message to them. So on the surface, yes, this this is a bit of an effort by the Israelis to to take heed of America's concerns, but in practice, it doesn't seem like it's amounted to much.
1: So U- U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has publicly called out Israel's military strategy. Can you go into what he said on Saturday?
0: What he said, I think the, the crux of it was that uh, if there is a, a, a truly appalling, not just civilian death toll, but you know, humanitarian conditions in Gaza during and after the war, then Israel risks turning a tactical victory in Gaza into a strategic defeat.
2: So I have repeatedly made clear to Israel's leaders that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative. That is
0: mm-hmm. certainly something the Americans, after decades of counterinsurgency wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere, uh, have some familiarity with. And, and so trying to put that not just in, in humanitarian terms or moral idealistic terms, but trying to say very clearly to the Israelis that whatever it is you think you're trying to achieve with this military campaign in Gaza, the idea is to remove Hamas from power, prevent it from ever being a threat to Israel again. but. Uh, Lloyd Austin's argument was that if you do that in such a way that, that creates widespread civilian suffering, you're going to end up, whether it's allowing Hamas to survive or or giving rise to some sort of group very much like Hamas uh, in, in the days and, and years to come.
1: And, and so, but the Israeli army hasn't seemed to, to heed that though. I mean, I'm just thinking of the past few days. We've seen some of the heaviest bombardment of the entire war, according to the UN. We
0: have, and that is what both Uh, that is how both Israelis and Palestinians describe it as well. I think for the Israeli, for the government and the army, there is a feeling that there's a ticking clock right now. The Americans have yet to call for a ceasefire. Joe Biden has been very clear that he does not support one right now. But uh, again, the messaging is getting tougher. And then add to that, that much of the world wants to see a ceasefire, including even some of Israel's other allies in the West. And so from the army's perspective, they have a certain window in which they can continue that, uh, this, this campaign in Gaza. That window is closing and they want to do as much as they can in whatever time is available to them. And so rather than doing what the Americans wanted them to do and, and going in quite slowly in a piecemeal fashion into southern Gaza, uh, they seem to be moving quickly because they, they feel like there is a ticking clock.
3: Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Another
1: point here is something else you mentioned earlier. What happens to the Palestinians in Gaza after the war? What has America said they don't want to see?
0: Secretary Blinken has set out uh, what he calls his five no's for the Gaza war and for what comes after the Gaza war. And Mm. on that list are things like no reduction in the territory of Gaza and no forcible displacement of the population of of Gaza outside of Mm. the territory. Um, That is America's position. What we've seen from Israel over the past few weeks often flies in the face of that. Uh, The Israeli government has said and has told America, has told Arab states that it plans to expand the buffer zone between Gaza and Israel. So in other words, expanding the amount of territory in Gaza on which Palestinians are not allowed to live, work, etc. That That is de facto a reduction in the territory of Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of displacement, uh, that hasn't happened yet. The Egyptian government has adamantly refused to allow Palestinians from Gaza uh, to enter Egypt, with the exception of a small number of uh, dual nationals and people who are severely injured being taken for medical treatment in Egypt. But uh, there has been talk in the Israeli government over the past two months about trying to do exactly that, trying to push a a large chunk of Gaza's population Hmm. outside of the enclave, at least temporarily uh, during the war. So These are America's demands. Israel's positions often uh, fly in the face of of American demands. And not only on that, but uh, on questions like who will govern afterwards. America would like to see the Palestinian Authority come back to Gaza. It controlled Gaza uh, until 2007 when Hamas threw it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said multiple times now that he doesn't want to see the PA come back to Gaza.
2: Israeli state broadcaster Khan broke the story of a closed-door meeting between Netanyahu and members of the Knesset, where the prime minister reportedly said, not only will there not be a renewed Palestinian authority in Gaza after the war, there will also be no Palestinian authority in Gaza at all.
0: America has talked about some sort of an Arab peacekeeping force to uh, operate in Gaza after the war. Netanyahu has said he doesn't support that idea either. Uh he de facto at this point uh is is pursuing what looks like it will be a prolonged occupation of Gaza, which was also on Secretary Blinken's list of no's. So there are real divergences in in how these two sides see the, the post-war order.
1: And and so these divergences, that, you know, this is really, these are questions of of how the war is being fought, not necessarily whether the war should be fought. So, But let's talk for a moment, if we could, about some of the things that the US and Israel fundamentally agree on about this war.
0: I think the the biggest one is for Israel in the wake of October 7th, their entire view of Hamas has changed. They thought that this was a manageable threat on their borders. They don't see it that way. Anymore, after mm-hmm. twelve hundred Israelis killed and, and hundreds more abducted, they see this now as an intolerable threat that they have to get rid of and on that, America is in full agreement, and that is why Joe Biden, when he publicly uh, swats away, calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, mm-hmm. he keeps coming back to that idea uh, that Hamas if there were a ceasefire now, it would be allowed to survive and and would remain a threat to israel and then That also ties into, for Biden, what he would like to see as as sort of a post-war hopeful, optimistic outcome of uh, this leading to a renewed peace process, a renewed effort at a two-state solution. Hamas has been a spoiler for the peace process since the early 1990s, since the Oslo Accords began. Um, And that is why, that is another reason why he supports getting rid of it. That is not something that the Netanyahu government supports, but that is something that uh, some people in the center and and on the left politically in Israel also agree with.
1: Okay, so we've been we've been talking about the the increasing strain here between uh, the U.S. and Israel, but but I think it's worth maybe taking a minute to to talk about for for people maybe don't have the background to talk about why this strain is so significant. So from a historical standpoint, what do people need to know about the the longstanding relationship, the the special relationship between the US and Israel? How how tied are the two countries?
0: It is, uh, if you wanna talk about uh, Israel's diplomatic relationships, uh, they don't get much older than the relationship with America. The United States recognized Israel moments after it was established as a state in 1948.
3: In a tense atmosphere, the assembly hears a statement of momentous importance read by United States delegate, Jessup.
2: The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel.
3: With United States recognition, the new Jewish state is launched, and Zionist leader... For
0: the first couple of decades, though, there were some frictions in the relationship, and it wasn't actually the closest relationship. Uh, During the Suez crisis in the 1950s, for example, uh, the Americans were not on Israel's side. Mm -hmm. The the diplomatic and military component of it took a few decades to evolve, but it has evolved to a point now where America is by far Israel's closest ally, provides it with several billion dollars a year in military aid, uh, provides it with a reliable veto at the United Nations Security Council, anything that... Uh, either America or Israel, deem an anti-Israeli resolution by and large is vetoed by the United States at the UN. Uh, And it's one of the few foreign relationships that for decades now has been a bipartisan issue in America. Both Republicans and and Democrats historically, up until quite recently, uh, were united in their, their political support for Israel.
1: We stand
2: with Israel. I love Israel. I love Israel. The bond between our two countries is unbreakable. The eternal friendship. Relationship is very important. (laughs) We are you and you
1: are us. Have we seen this level of strain before?
0: We have. I mean, there have been tensions in the relationship, but more recently, the strains tend to involve uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who has been prime minister, of course, for Uh, more than half of the the past 30 years, um, and has routinely butted heads with Democratic presidents uh, back in the late 1990s when Bill Clinton was in the White House. All Israeli presidents there. All pussycats here.
2: Let me, uh, first of all, say I'm delighted to have the prime minister here. I look forward to having a chance to, uh, to have this conversation.
0: He often clashed with Netanyahu over efforts to try and push forward the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, Barack Obama famously at odds with Netanyahu about a number of things, but uh, the biggest of those was Netanyahu's efforts to sabotage the nuclear deal with Iran, which was Barack Obama's signature foreign policy initiative.
2: Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has not offered any kind of viable alternative uh, that would achieve uh, the same verifiable mechanism to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon.
0: Something that Netanyahu fought tooth and nail to the point where he flew to Washington and delivered a speech
2: to Congress Mm.
0: uh, denouncing Obama's diplomatic efforts.
2: We've been told that no deal is better than a bad deal. Well, this is a bad deal. We're better off without it.
0: a better relationship with Donald Trump for the four years that he was in office, he's always gotten along much better with Republicans, but uh, then also had a very frosty time with Joe Biden up until October 7th. Uh, For most of this year, his relationship with the Biden administration was terrible. The president uh, refused to invite Netanyahu to the White House, large part because of Netanyahu's efforts to hobble the Israeli Supreme Court and and overhaul the country's judicial system. Uh, Biden was, was often very, very critical of that.
1: Okay, so despite the public disagreement, the U.S. is still supporting Israel with significant amounts of military aid. Is the U.S. leveraging this influence to the fullest extent? Is it, is it showing any signs of pulling back at all?
0: I don't think it's leveraging it as much as it could. I'm, I'm also not sure that, given the realities of American politics, uh, a president heading into an election year would be willing to to use that sort of influence. Um, you know, I think a good example, as you mentioned before, this this idea of uh, visa bans on violent settlers <laughs> is something that the the State Department announced earlier this week and. The idea there is that we have seen uh, a big uptick in settler violence in the occupied West Bank, settlers attacking Palestinians and their property. The videos are everywhere. Daily evidence of Palestinians being violently attacked by Israeli settlers, often armed, and in some cases, murdering Palestinians. Burning homes, businesses, and cars. Something that was widespread even before October 7th, but has become an even bigger problem Over the past two months. And so the State Department said that it was going to start imposing visa bans on uh, some of these violent settlers. I think two issues with that as a policy. One is that the sorts of settlers who are involved in violence against Palestinians, they're deeply ideological. I don't think they're going to be deterred from burning down Palestinian olive groves or Attacking Palestinian farmers because they can't take their kids to Disney World, they can't get a visa to the United States. I don't think that's a, a real deterrent. But then the bigger issue is, you know, you have to look at settler violence not just as an individual phenomenon, but something that exists in the context of a half-century-plus occupation of the West Bank. For America to treat this as just a problem of individuals, I think shows you that it wants to do something symbolic, but. It doesn't want to go further and, say, threaten sanctions on the Israeli army if it doesn't start fulfilling its responsibility to protect Palestinians. The Biden administration doesn't want to do that. Arguably, it can't do that going into an election year because uh, it could be politically damaging for a president who's already facing big questions about his re-election. But they're settling for symbolism rather than doing something more substantive. Mm -hmm. You talk to some people in Washington who will tell you that you know they think the Biden administration is almost a dinosaur in the sense that uh, you have this president who, not just in, in terms of policy, but his own ideology, the way President Biden talks about Israel, he is deeply personally committed to the state of Israel in a way that many younger Democrats are not. And it's entirely possible that. Whoever is the next Democratic president after Joe Biden uh, will not feel the same sort of, of reflexive ironclad support for Israel that the current president does.
1: All right, Greg, thanks so much. It's, uh, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. That's all for today. Before we say goodbye, I want to leave you with an update from a guest we spoke with a while back. Dr. Mohammed Abu Mugaisib is the deputy medical coordinator for MSF in Gaza. We wanted to know how he was doing this week, so we reached out. And here's part of the voice note he sent us.
3: What I can say, I mean, the situation is really getting worse and worse. I mean, after asking the population to move to the south, and the majority moved to the south, and now they are attacking the south and doing ground operation in the south area. Uh, South, North, I mean, Gaza City, all are the same. Bombing, striking, I mean, maybe you can hear the drones that doesn't stop at all, that make you crazy. Uh, Situation is becoming, I mean, hospitals are almost not functioning and there is no more hospitals functioning in the North. Now we can say that Gaza is, uh, I mean, it says no living zone for human beings uh people are getting uh, i mean we are in the starvation era uh, there is no more food in the market there is no it's enough entering people really you can you know, can they look like zombies i mean i mean they look really like zombies here the people now because there is no food i mean it's it's horrible it's really horrible uh I, I don't know what more to say about the situation there's no awards i mean it's the um it's the catastrophe of the century. I mean, when we... Uh... All
1: right, I'm Damon Fairless. Brent Burns is back tomorrow. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. For more
2: CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.